0: We are starting in the outline. <clears throat> Excuse me. We're on page three, and under Roman numeral two, which reads the authentication of the king, and then letter A, the acceptance of his person. And we are now down in number six, the witness of John. What we're going to do this evening, I know I kept you guys so late last time, I feel terrible, I really do. Um, We're probably going to go through paragraph 36, and we'll call it a night. But um, also, thank you for your flexibility. Deb and Vince have the worship team that's going to be leading worship at the MJAA conference. So they needed a place to rehearse. She asked if they could use the sanctuary. I said, yeah, that's not a problem. And um, so that's why we're in here. Um, But that's going to be a great conference. I guess Friday night and Sunday night, Paul Wilbur is going to be playing and there's going to be all kinds of speakers on Saturday. I know Michael Rydelnik is going to be teaching Friday night, the chairman of the Jewish Studies Department at Moody Bible Institute. And then um uh, Arnold Fruchtenbaum, he's now in Hawaii. He's flying in for the for the conference. He'll be speaking on Saturday and then he flies back to Hawaii. And uh, I'll have opportunity to share a little bit as well, so that'll be that'll be fun. So I think Mary Lou and I we're going to head down on Friday, spend the night and be there Saturday. Uh, and then back here for service on Sunday. So that's next week. But if if any of you can make it, you know, check it out on online. Also, um, this is just amazing. I just want to share this with you that, you know, every, <clears throat> every service we get visitor cards, you know, we greet everyone, we make them available. Well, two cards that came back to us had indicated that two individuals had invited the Lord into their lives this past Sunday. And one was a Jewish uh, person, the other married to a non-Jewish person. So it's really exciting. And I thought I need to pre- I need to preach more on Gog and Magog. You know. Forget John 3:16. It's Ezekiel 38:39, you know? That's the anointed passage. So, who would have thought? You know? What's that? Oh, I guess. I guess I don't know. I... So, I was I was just shocked. I said, "What? But it is fantastic, and it's a blessing, and it's a joy. So we want to lift up these individuals. And then another gal that came, a Jewish believer, who's not been in fellowship for a very long time, and in fact was part of Shepherd of Israel congregation when Howard Silverman, remember I introduced him, who is the president of the UMJC? Well, Howard, before he went over to Cleveland, Ohio, or Columbus, Ohio, where he's now pastor or shepherd or messianic rabbi of... um, Beth Messiah, I think it's called, and he's the president of the UMJC. Before he went out there, he worked with Chosen People Ministries with Chris Malisco. And those two guys had a ministry called Shepherd of Israel Congregation, somewhere in Woodland Hills, I think, or in the valley here. And she was a part of that congregation. So here she stayed for the Super Bowl party, and there's Chris. And they were like, you know, hadn't seen each other in maybe 20 years or something of that sort. So that's kind of neat that she was here and hopefully she'll be here again Sunday. So um sort of like you know, hold on to your hat, who knows where the Lord is taking us. But it's very exciting and it's loads of fun too. So um here we are in paragraph thirty three. Come on in, Domina. Not a problem, just close the door because it's cold. You know. Other than that, everything's good. Um so paragraph thirty three brings us to John chapter three verse uh twenty two. And it is the witness of John. Now, the Jewish people only practiced immersion. So when they were uh, involved in baptizing, they never were involved in sprinkling or pouring. And it's reflected here in this passage in John because it says in verse 22, After these things, Yeshua came, his disciples, into the land of Judea, There he tarried with them and he baptized or immersed. And John also is baptizing because there was much water there. So if they were pouring or sprinkling, there wouldn't have been a need for much water. So it's another reinforcement of baptism by uh, immersion. John, when he begins his baptizing ministry, he is in the southern end of the Jordan River where it runs into the Dead Sea. So that's the area just east of Jericho, just north of the Dead Sea. On the opposite bank of the Jordan River is Mount Nebo, where Moses dies and has opportunity to see all the land before he dies. That is the region, it's, it's all desert, and that is where John is involved in immersing. Toward the end of the summer months, and before the rainy season be, begins, the water gets very shallow. And uh, so John, it appears, moves north, and he goes into this area of Salim, and it should be an M, Salim, where the Sea of Galilee runs into the Jordan River because there's much water there. So this must have been during that season when the waters are drying up. The rainy season has uh, ended, and so he moves north. And during the summer months, there's more water there, Three. More water there, which reveals how important immersion was in the Jewish culture. Now, the disciples of John—they observe, they're observing the movement or the enlargement, the growth of Yeshua's own disciples. Remember, John is uh, proclaiming as the herald, of, the herald of the King, and and he's proclaiming that the kingdom of heavens is at hand. So he has gathered a number of disciples, and many are coming out to be baptized by John. Then he sees Yeshua, as we saw earlier, and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. So many of his disciples now are following after Yeshua, but not all. Some are still loyal to John, and they're still following him. In fact, when we get into the book of Acts, we find that there's a very articulate Jewish believer by the name of Apollos, and he's not aware of the baptizing work of the Holy Spirit and so he's lacking empowerment in the proclaiming of his message and it says that he was only aware of the baptism of John so he was a disciple of John he may not have stayed in the Middle East it appears that he might have been from uh, Alexandria and so he's not aware of all that has transpired with Yeshua and so uh, in Corinth he's going to be instructed more fully about the work of salvation and uh, the work of Messiah. So they're disciples of John. They observe the ministry of Yeshua, his disciples, and that they are growing. And they're growing in larger numbers than John's own uh, band of disciples. And these disciples of John become jealous for John. And uh, they draw attention to the fact so they say, there arose therefore a question on the part of John's disciples with a Jewish person about purifying. They came unto to John, and they said, Rabbi, he that was with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have borne witness, the same baptizes and all men are coming to him. So the one that you baptized is now attracting more followers to himself. And John's wonderful words in verse 30 is some of the, the greatest marks of humility where he says, he must increase, but I must decrease. So John is very clear about what his ministry is. His is a heralding ministry. His is a pointing ministry to Yeshua. And he wants people to follow after him. And so he says, he, his ministry must increase and my must de- decrease. In verse 28, he says, uh, as he explains to them this principle, he says, a man can receive nothing except to be given him from heaven, given to him from above. And you yourselves have borne witness that I said that I'm not the Messiah, but I'm the one that is sent before him as his herald and and he that hath the bridegroom uh, he that hath the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom, which stands and hears him, he rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice, and thus my joy is fulfilled. So in this instance he's saying, the bridegroom is the messiah, and the bride is the congregation of believers that are being drawn to himself. We refer to this later in the New Testament as the church. And the word church, again, I mentioned this on Sunday, but the word church refers to people. It does not refer to a building. We generally speak of going to church, uh, but we the church doesn't go, uh, excuse me, the church is what goes, the building is what stays. So the church never Uh, is not the place to which the people go. The church is the people, and they go to a place. Now, the word church comes from the Greek word ekklesia. And so it's made up of two Greek words. Ek is a preposition, means out of. And the second part of the word, klesia, comes from the Greek word kaleo, which means to call. And so the ekklesia are ones who are called out. And so what are they called out from? They're called out from the world and they're called out unto God. And so they are the believers. So when he, says the, when he makes reference to the bridegroom, he says, He that hath the bride, that is the body of believers, the church, the called out ones, is the bridegroom. So the bridegroom is the Messiah. Those that belong to the bridegroom, the bride is the body of Messiah, the body of Christ, the body of uh, the church. And in Acts chapter 2, the ecclesia is created. The ecclesia does not exist until Acts chapter 2. And we know this because in John's gospel, later as we're going to see in the upper room discourse, Yeshua says to his disciples, I will build, uh, well, he says to, to uh, the disciples in Matthew 16, I will build my ecclesia, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Something yet future. I will yet build it. And it comes to fruition in Acts 2 when the uh, Spirit of God descends and the Spirit of God baptizes or immerses or places uh, the individuals into the body of Messiah or into this called-out body. So that helps us understand something about the work of the Holy Spirit. The work of the Holy Spirit is to place believers into the body of Messiah. That's what the baptizing work of the Holy Spirit is about. There are five different ministries of the Holy Spirit. We'll look at this over the course of time. But, uh, and I'm not sure I'll remember all five. But for example, in Ephesians, if I'm not mistaken, Mitch can correct me. But in Ephesians, it speaks of the sealing work of the Holy Spirit. Am I right in that? Ephesians, Mitch? That, or Galatians? Or, but but uh, we are, by the Holy Spirit, we are sealed unto the day of redemption. The sealing is a mark. By sealing, the idea is two things. It is uh, security. When you're sealed, you are secure. And secondly, you are identified with. Or in other words, that which is sealed is now belonging to the one that had sealed it. So in this case, when we talk about the sealing work of the Holy Spirit, it means the Holy Spirit is now, uh, in a sense, marking this individual as belonging to to the Lord and securing that individual in the grace of the Lord. So that's what the sealing work of the Holy Spirit is about. There is what's referred to as the filling of the Spirit. The word f- to be filled of the Spirit means to be controlled. So it says, do not be drunk with wine. Now, I know we're in Ephesians 5. <laughs> be not be drunk with wine, that is to be controlled by something other than the Spirit of God. So don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. So it means to be controlled. In Acts two, where we speak, and in other places, where we speak of the um, the baptizing work of the Holy Spirit, to be baptized with means to be identified with. Doesn't mean to be empowered by. Doesn't mean to have the Holy Spirit more or less. When you're a believer, you have the Spirit of God. Now he may need to get more hold of us. We need to be more yielded to him. But you never receive more or less of the Spirit. The Spirit dwells within you. And our role is to be sanctified by the Spirit, another work of the Spirit, where he makes us more and more like the Messiah himself. And, um, and that's a process over time. But to be baptized, just like in water baptism, it means you're identified with the body of Messiah, his death, burial, and resurrection. The baptizing work of the Holy Spirit identifies us with one another, and that's why in 1 Corinthians it says we are all. Now, when you think about the Corinthian church, there are a lot of problems in that in that congregation of believers, and yet, especially when you read through 1 uh, uh, Corinthians, right? You have this party spirit. Some say I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, and others say, Hey, but we're of Jesus, man. So, you know, uh, we're, we really know who to latch on to. But it was all this party spiriting. You know, a lot of divisiveness, a lot of divisions. He said in the in the body of believers in Corinth, he said there was even such sexual sin that there was one who was having sexual relations with his stepmother. And so he says, I pray to hand such one over to uh, Satan for the destruction of the body and the saving of the soul. So there's a lot of problems. There was abuses of the gifts of the spirit. There was... A a misuse of the gifts. The gifts were present. They weren't false, but they weren't being exercised properly. For example, he says with respect to the gift of tongues, he said that no more than two or three, one at a time, and there must be an interpreter. Evidently, people were exercising the gift without interpretation, more than one or two. He said at most three. And he said things were not being done decently and in order. And by the way, the gift of tongues is the only gift that has restrictions on it. Must have an interpreter. You don't read anything about that like with gift of prophesying or teaching or pastoring. But the gift of tongues cannot be operated unless there's an interpretation. It cannot be operated by more than two or three. And it can't be operated more than one person at a time. So if you go into a fellowship where everyone is doing it, they're not in order. They're doing it like what was going on in the Corinthians. And if there's no interpretation, they're doing it just like the Corinthians and Paul was instructing them in the proper use of the gifts. Others were saying, look, you don't have as good a gift as I have. And he did acknowledge there were greater gifts, but the giftings that we receive are not according to our will, they're according to the Spirit of God's will. And while some may be more important than others i don't know if that's the right word but let's just use it for the time being they all are important in their own right because where would the hand be without the fingers or without the shoulder but messiah is the head and in that passage he said we were all baptized by one spirit into one body by one god the father who is the lord over us all so when he says we've all been baptized there isn't any sense in which there are some believers who have been baptized and some who have not We all are, and that baptizing work occurs at the moment of salvation, and he places us in the body of Messiah. We'll get more into this as time goes on to learn about that as we consider starting Sunday school and all kinds of things. We'll have some uh, interesting classes where we could really penetrate and discuss these kinds of things. At least that's part of my dream. In any case, um, so the friend of the bridegroom are the Old Testament saints. John is among them. So there's so John's point is uh, the bridegroom is the one being married to the bride and the friends of the bridegroom then rejoices in uh, his experience. And in this case, John is saying, I rejoice in all the good things that Yeshua is experiencing because I came to herald him and he must increase, but I must decrease. In verse 34, this is an interesting passage, he says, For he whom God hath sent speaks the words of God, for he giveth not the Spirit by measure. In other words, the Spirit of God resided in the Lord without measure. He had the ultimate fullness of the Spirit. You and I do not receive the fullness of the Spirit. You and I receive the Spirit of God in measure, whereas the Messiah is the one and only one who receives the Spirit of God without measure. And this is in fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, 1 and 2. And this is the passage we recite every Sunday when we light the candles. And one day I want to do a, a little series on each one of these qualities or attributes of the Messiah, which would be kind of fun as we reflect on the candles and what we're saying. But in Isaiah chapter 11 says, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, a branch from his roots will bear fruit. And now what you have is the sevenfold presence, which is one way of saying the fullness of the Spirit of God resting upon him. So he says the Spirit of the Lord rests on him. And the Spirit of the Lord is defined by these six elements. He, he, he possesses the spirit of wisdom and understanding, counsel and strength, knowledge and and the fear of the Lord. The imagery is that of a menorah, and the light, the full light of God's presence and power reside on the Messiah, and thus the spirit of God without measure rests upon him. That's what John is writing here and that's what John the Baptist is stating. So this is in fulfillment of what the prophets said would be the characteristic of the Messiah the fullness of the spirit will rest upon him. So Messiah is given the spirit without measure, whereas we as believers receive the spirit in measure. What does that mean? That means we all have different callings. We all have different spiritual gifts. But all of that is for the purpose of doing God's will. And that is uh, true for Yeshua. But he had no limitations regarding the spirit of God. In paragraph 34, we now are introduced to uh, John's imprisonment. So, when, uh, therefore, the Lord knew how that the Pharisees had heard that Yeshua was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Yeshua himself baptized none, but his disciples did, he left Judea and departed again into Galilee, and must needs pass through Samaria. So, Yeshua leaves Judea, he goes back to Galilee, and he tells us, or at least John records three reasons. One, the Pharisees had heard Yeshua is making more disciples than John was. And so he knows that they are going to be fo- uh, focusing attention upon him. And now is not the time to get embroiled in the conflicts or uh, to move to, toward his demise or his death prematurely. So he moves to Galilee where he anticipates a greater level of acceptance secondly Yeshua's movement through Samaria was also part of God's divine plan notice verse 4 it says he must needs pass through Samaria so this was in a way this was not optional for him this is what God intended for him to go through Samaria at this particular time and thirdly uh, in Luke's account in chapter 3 verse 20 it says also John was imprisoned and so because of John's arrest He wants to get out of all the action that's occurring around him and to focus on the discipleship of his disciples as well as the enlargement of their number. So John was arrested. And we're told in verse 19 of Luke chapter 3 that Herod the Tetrarch being reproved by John for Herodias his brother's wife and for all the evil things which Herod had done added yet this above all that he in addition in addition, imprisoned the prophet of God. Josephus explains to us a great deal of the dynamics that were going on with Herod, Herod Herod the Great and Herod's sons. John was arrested because of his statements about Herod the Tetrarch's false marriage to Herodias. Herod married Herodias. Uh-oh, uh-oh. Oh, that's because of the internet. Okay. Herod uh, married Herodias. The reason why he spoke out against Herod was because Herod had mar- married Herodias while her first husband was still alive, and she was married to Herod's brother, Philip. So um, John spoke out against uh, this kind of behavior, and as a result, Herod had him arrested and thrown in prison and there he'll stay until he is beheaded now the thing to remember is this theme what happens to the herald happens to the king there's going to be an arrest just like there was an arrest of John there's going to be an arrest of the Messiah and just as John's arrest will lead to his death so Messiah's arrest will ultimately lead to his death as well. And just as Herod was angry with John because of his straightforward uh, ex, uh, exposing of his sin, so Yeshua too is going to be arrested because he's going to speak very verbally and be exposing the sin of the Jewish leadership of his day. And that's going to prompt them to respond. And in responding, he'll be arrested and ultimately executed. So in verse 14, um, uh, we read in Luke's account, chapter 4, verse 14, and Yeshua returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee. So all of this is demonstrating the sovereignty of God, the divine plan that Yeshua is uh, engaged in fulfilling. So none of this is sort of happenstance, but rather he needs to go through Samaria, and he's empowered by the Spirit of God. So He just like... The Spirit of God led him into the wilderness to be uh, tempted by the evil one. So now the Spirit of God is empowering him, filling him, guiding him, and leading him as he continues on in his public ministry. In paragraph 35, Yeshua enters into Samaria. And here we have his acceptance by the Samaritans. This is actually pretty remarkable when you consider that the Messiah of Israel has come unto his own, this is going to highlight John's earlier statement, he came unto his own, but his own did not receive him. He came unto Israel, came unto his own people, but his own people in bulk as a nation does not receive him. On the other hand, we see an example of those who are non-Jews, Samaritans, who are um, responding very enthusiastically to him. The Samaritans were an interesting group because they were a mixed people. They were mixed in two ways. Number one, ethnically. The uh, people that the Assyrians, now we're looking back, it's about 721, or I should say, yeah, about 721, when the Assyrians took the northern kingdom of Israel captive. Remember, after the death of Solomon, the, the united kingdom of Israel, the nation of Israel, divides. And the northern kingdom of Israel, uh, of, made up of ten tribes, secedes from the southern two tribes uh, of Judah. Judah and Benjamin, but Judah will characterize the southern kingdom. So the southern kingdom will retain the name Judah. And the northern kingdom of the ten tribes will retain the name Israel. In the south, they will have one dynasty, the dynasty of David. All the kings in the south are descendants of David. They're not all good, but there's something like nine kings who are good that do what is right in the eyes of the Lord. In the northern kingdom of Israel, there's 11, uh, I believe, 11 different dynasties. And none of the kings in the north uh, do what is righteous. They all do that which is wicked in the eyes of the Lord. Well, one of the reasons is none of those kings are descendants of David, so they don't belong on the throne. Now, on the other hand, Those that do arise to the throne, they do so by prophetic sanction. God tells the prophet to anoint a certain individual to lead the northern kingdom. But in another sense, that's contrary to God's ultimate intended purpose, which was a unified nation. But once the kingdom of Israel splits into the northern kingdom of Israel, southern kingdom of Judah, 721, the ten tribes, the northern kingdom of of Israel, is taken captive by the Assyrians in the far north. When the Assyrians take them captive and they are exiled or the bulk of the people are taken to Assyria, not all the Israelites are taken to Assyria. Some remain in the land. Some Assyrians then are brought into the northern kingdom of Israel to settle there. And there's intermarriage that goes on. And so you have some in the northern kingdom of Israel that intermarry with the Assyrians. As such, they become ethnically a diverse people. And known as Samaritans because they res- the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel was Samaria. Whereas the nor- in the southern kingdom, its capital was Jerusalem. So in reflection of the capital city Samaria, the people that now sort of uh, emerge out of this hodgepodge between the Assyrians and the Israelites that remained are named as Samaritans after the region of Samaria, and after the city uh, of Samaria. Religiously, they are different as well, because these Assyrians brought with them some pagan worship style, and thus they adopted the God of the Israelites in the northern kingdom as one of the many gods that the Assyrians recognized and added him to their pantheon rather than to recognize him as the only God. By the first century, however, the New Testament period, the Samaritans uh, reject this pantheon of gods and this idolatrous uh, worship, and they become monotheistic, and they recognize the uh, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but with certain limitations that are distinct from the Jews. And thus, some of their practices were still uncomfortable for the Jewish people to adopt. And thus, even though they, they shed their... A paganism, or the idolatrous ways, and believe in one God. They still hold on to certain things that are contrary to uh, the Jewish people, and we'll see some of them in a minute. So the Samaritans, because they were not, because of their beliefs and their ethnic uh, diversity, they were not allowed to worship in the temple. As a result, they built their own temple on Mount Gerizim. In the region of Samaria. Now this is an interesting thing: opposite Mount Gerizim is Mount Ebal. The reason they go to Mount Gerizim is because when the Israelites, under Joshua, enter the land and begin to secure the, uh, the land, when Joshua comes in, he crosses the Jordan from the east and comes into Jericho, and that's his first battle. And what he's attempting to do is to take the central people groups and villages and cities. So he goes after Jericho, goes after Ai, and some other cities along the way. And that cuts the land of Israel in half. Then he moves south. Because in the south, five different nations uh, create an alliance to attack the Israelites and to try to push them north so that they can retain uh, their own independence. They lose in their battles against Joshua. And so now Joshua has secured the center and the south. Once he's secured these two areas, he can reunite his entire army and move north. As he moves north, he secures the region of Samaria and the region of what we would refer to as Galilee. Now, once, once he secures this area the people of Israel march in and claim the land. The first thing that Joshua does is he has the nation enter the region going through a valley between Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. And he has the Levites divided up and he places some on top of Mount Ebal and some on the top of Mount Gerizim. And Mount Gerizim is a very green Lush mountain range, much like our area, you know, up in the Thousand Oaks, Oak Park area now, where it's nice and green and lush. And by the way, a lot of this region looks a lot like the hill country of Judah and this, that region of Israel. It's very similar in many respects. So Mount Gerizim is very green. Mount Ebal was a rock faced mountain. So it was very dry, dusty, and rocky. So the Levites on Mount Ebal would recite the curses of the Mosaic Law. If you do not obey me, this is the curses. And it it was sort of pictorial because as they heard the words of God's judgment or potential judgment, it was coming from a mountain that looked judged because there was no life on it, there was no green, there was no fertility. On the other hand, the blessings of the law were recited from Mount Gerizim, it looked all green, and all the good blessings of God resided from there. And the people of Israel, as they heard this cov- the covenantal uh, promises articulated, they sort of entered the land walking through the covenant. It was sort of reminiscent of Abraham, who when God made the covenant of Abraham, he, they took the parts of the animal, cut them in half, and Abraham was to walk through the, with them with God. In the case of Abraham, God puts Abraham to sleep, and only God in a pillar of fire goes through the parts of the sacrifice. And in going through them, he makes the covenant unconditional because Abraham's asleep. God then is binding himself to bless Abraham as he states. In the case of the Mosaic Law, It's a conditional covenant. If you do this, I will do that. If you don't do this, I'm going to do this. And so as they walk through this valley and these two mountains, they hear the conditions of the covenant. And it reinforces all that Moses had told them, all that Joshua is now telling them, and they are now responsible to obey the covenant. The Samaritans built their temple on Mount Gerizim because that was the mountain from which the blessings of the covenant were uh were stated and they weren't permitted in the temple in Jerusalem by the way if you today that's in the west bank so it's not really a good place to go but i remember back in 70 i had the opportunity to go to israel twice in the 1970s in the same year in fact and uh one was just a 10 week a 10 day um tour of the land you know the, the buses the five star hotels and it was great marilyn and i we had a blast And in fact, I was there with uh, some really neat individuals. Dr. Daniel Fuchs, who was the president of Chosen People Ministries, was there. Dr. Charles Feinberg, uh, who was good friends with Dr. Fuchs, was there, and he was doing the devotionals and teaching us. And uh, there was, uh, you know, it's fun, Jacob, Jacob Gorin, who was our staff member, Holocaust survivor, who went to Israel. He was a believer during the Holocaust, survived went to Israel and opened up a branch for chosen people right in Jerusalem and we were entertained in his house. And I'll never forget, um, I don't know the, the real reason for it, maybe i just take after my mother because when we would eat in the kitchen, my mother never ate with us. You know, she would serve the food and she might pick and then say, oh, you need some more and she'd be getting more and then if we were done, she was clearing the table. and I don't remember her really ever sitting down and eating with us, you know. And I, I sort of become like that, you know, I, after I eat, I'm usually cleaning up somewhere. I'm washing the dishes, merely saying, come on, just sit with us. I'll be right there, you know. So I remember when I was in Jerusalem and I was at Jacob Gordon's home and we were, and Leah Gordon, uh, we were sitting together and we're all around this table. We're all eating. We're all finishing. So I got up and I started picking up the plates and all. And Jacob says to me, no, 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 you know, you're our guest. You, you don't have to help us. I said, look, you know, I'm really, I, I'd like to help. And he said, no. You remember the story of Abraham when he was visited by the three men, the three angels? He tells Sarah to make this. He serves them. You are our guest. This is at the way that we share our hospitality, you know. So it's sort of a nice, quiet rebuke of uh, just... <laughs> just enjoy you don't always have to work you know but um in any case so when i was that was early on that year then later i was there with arnold and we were there on a five-week historical geography study tour and we were just all over the place we had three volkswagen buses which was at certain times was extremely dangerous with these israelis you know running us off the road because we were going too slow and um But we had a great time. We went places where you can't really go today because it was not as dangerous. Back then, Israel had control of the Sinai and it was in great uh, great condition. So I remember going with Arnold, driving into the Sinai and then spending the evening with some Bedouins and then getting up real early in the morning, like around 12 or so, getting to the foot of Mount Sinai, climbing it and then seeing the sunrise and then climbing back down And then going into St. Catherine's Monastery, which is at the base of it, it's the oldest monastery in the world. It was built like in the uh, something like 900 and something. And it houses the largest collection of icons in the world. So if you're into artwork and stuff, you know, all the uh, Russian Orthodox, Greek Orthodox icons, you see those very unique images, you know. Well, during the iconoclastic controversy, when the Catholic Church was saying making images of God is... Is contrary to God's command, they were destroying all these images. Uh, some of them were shipped down to the Sinai, some of them. The bulk of them were shipped to the Sinai. And because of the weather there and how dry it is, they've been preserved all these years. And so you go down there, you walk through the library and through these buildings, and ju- you just have icons going back from 800s, 900s, 1100s. You know, It's really quite beautiful if you can appreciate uh, artwork. Some of it's very strange, you know, culturally for a Jewish person. It's really weird. But if you just put that on the side for a moment, and just enjoy the sense of artistic ability. Plus their library has some of the oldest theological books in the world. And um, and you can walk in the library and you see these books. And it's just, it's absolutely amazing. But um, I tell you, I, I've got all slides from it. So one of these days, I'll bring them all in. We'll take a look at them. Going back in 79, you know. But um, it's really quite majestic and really interesting. And at the foot of Mount Sinai is the one mountain this is one of the reasons they believe. They're not really certain where Mount Sinai is, but the reason why this seems to really be the place is because in all the Sinai, it's the only place where a valley opens up or a, a space opens up at the base where you could house maybe a million people and have the tabernacle and, and the... You know, the tribes camped around it. So it's really quite quite an interesting thing. On that trip, uh, Arnold took us into the West Bank. We saw, just to tell you what Arnold could be like, uh, we saw every place where one of David's mighty men came from. There are 32 of them. So we'd go to a place. He'd say, okay, everybody out. And we'd get out, and he'd say, see that hill there? That's where one of David's mighty men went. Everybody see it? Okay, back in the bus. And, you know, it's like he he had to go to each spot. He wouldn't, you know, do due diligence if we didn't see every spot where David's mighty men were. But it was fascinating. And it was it was a delight. One of the places he took us was Mount Gerizim, Jacob's Well, uh, which, again, is incredible. They take like a, a stone, they drop it, and you stand there for like five seconds. And all of a sudden, longer than five, you know you know i mean it was it's just like way down there you know and then they would take out some of the water you could taste it if you're uh adventurous and and it's like ice cold you know ice cold just really kind of neat things i did, i did everything never got sick mary lou was concerned about getting sick and never took any, any of those things you know she wouldn't eat some of these things she got sick but i just went for broke you know as so i'm doing it you know and and i was okay um but he took us to Samaria, this, this is where this is going, took us to Samaria and we were able to see the foundations of the temple that the Samaritans had built, all of that to say where um, on Mount Gerizim, but Mount Gerizim thus became their holy site and by the way it's, it's near the village of Shechem which is uh, where uh, Joseph was um, I think buried or located. So the Samaritans would not allow the Jews to travel through Samaria on their way to Jerusalem. But you could travel from Jerusalem on your way, you know, through Jerusalem up to Galilee. But more often than not, you know, Israel in the first century was divided into, you had in the south, Judea, Judah, Judea, Samaria, Galilee. And on the eastern side of the Jordan River was Perea. And so the way Jewish people would travel from the north to the south was you'd come down, and then instead of going straight down through Samaria, you'd cut across on the other side of the Jordan, go down through Samaria, and then cut back. It was a little longer, but you stayed away from trouble where the Samaritans didn't want you. and where. You